turning our attention to the second attitude that'll take our life to a new level, the attitude of responsibility. This message is the third in the series, Runway. The message is entitled, Accept Responsibility. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Grab your Bibles, if you will, your teaching sheets as we turn our attention to God's Word this weekend. We started a couple of weekends ago a new series of messages entitled Runway. I want to continue that theme this weekend, talking about accepting responsibility for your life, accepting responsibility for your life. I'd like to start by asking you the same question that I started with last weekend. The question is this, what do you want your life to be? Not just what do you want to do with your life, but what do you really want your life to be? Five years from now, ten years from now, two years from now, six months from now, what do you want to be as a person? Again, it's not about the occupation of your life, the profession, what kind of achievements that you want to have in life, but I'm talking about you as a person. And I would submit to you today that more than likely the difference between who you are now and who you really want to become in life, the kind of person that you want to be, that difference is going to be determined by your attitude. Attitude is everything. A negative attitude can be your worst liability in life. A positive attitude can be your greatest assets. We, asset. we all need to work on our attitudes. We need to upgrade our attitudes because your attitudes in life is what will take you to the next level. To move to a higher dimension of living, your attitudes have to be adjusted. An attitude is the way you think. It's your mindset about God, your mindset about you, your mindset about other people, your mindset about the world and life around you. It's the way you think, your, your unconscious approach to living that affects your, your actions, your behaviors, because every action and behavior is backed up by a way of thinking. It's backed up by a set of attitudes. And Jesus is very concerned about our attitudes. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 22 and 23, listen to his words, throw off your old sinful nature, that's who you were before you became a follower of Christ, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And please notice verse 23, instead, let the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, renew your thoughts and attitudes. God says, I want to work on your thinking, I want to work on your attitudes. And in a number of different places in the Bible, we see a variety of lists of attitudes that you and I need to develop as believers. Spiritual attitudes, psychological attitudes, relational attitudes, work attitudes that need to be a part of how we live our life. One of these lists is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, and that's the focal point of this series together, verses 5 through 8. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to these eight attitudes that are referenced here by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities, or we might say these attitudes, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eight attitudes. He says, start with faith. We talked last weekend about faith being the foundational attitude for everything. Without faith, you can't build a foundation for these other important attitudes. And then add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, 
mutual affection, the mutual affection, love. And if these eight attitudes are in you in increasing measure, they're going to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. In other words, they're going to take your life to a new level. I love the way the New Living Translation gives us verse number eight. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the attitudes that need to be developed. Now, we're going to talk this weekend about a very specific attitude. Add to your faith goodness. Last weekend we talked about faith, and now I want us to focus our attention upon the next word in this list of eight, and that is the word goodness. You will not soar, your life will not rise to a new level of living without goodness. You and I need to become good. Jesus wants you to experience goodness in your life and to be a good person. Now, being good, let me just say this before we get into the heart of today's message, being good will never get you to heaven. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. Only Jesus was good enough to get you to heaven. So we put our faith in Christ and Christ's righteousness is given to us. And through the righteousness of Christ, we're made right with God and we're able to experience heaven. And so you can't work your way into heaven by being good. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, goodness then should become a part of who you are. You should approach life with an attitude of of goodness. And this attitude of goodness speaks of an orientation of superiority. You're living a superior kind of life, a life of virtue, a life of excellence, a life that represents a sense of responsibility in the way that you live. And so I want to attach to that word goodness this concept of accepting responsibility in your life because you'll never be good without accepting the responsibility to be good, to learn something about goodness. And let me share with you five ways that you and I need to think and behave and be as God's people if we're going to be good. And again, goodness takes life to a new level. Number one, good people cultivate a good conscience. This is where goodness begins. It begins with your conscience. Now, you and I can't understand good if we don't also understand bad. There is no good without understanding bad, no bad without understanding good. And so inside of us, God placed, as He created us, an internal guidance system, again given to us by God, that is designed to provide us with the awareness of what's good and what's bad, and that internal guidance system is called your conscience. Every human being is equipped with the capacity to have a conscience on the inside that helps determine what is good and bad, what is right and what is wrong. Now, just because you have a conscience given to you by God doesn't mean that your conscience is functioning, nor does it mean that your conscience is functioning properly. And so we have to make sure that having been given this opportunity for a conscience inside of us, that we make sure that it's functioning and it's functioning well. And for our conscience to function well, there are four things that need to happen because without a good conscience, you'll never be a good person. And the first thing you must understand about a conscience is it needs to be God-activated. What I mean by that is this, there needs to be a moment when you've experienced the presence of God in your life in such a way that your conscience has been made alive. Why is this important? Because all of us are born into the world as sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are born into this world as sinful people. We have a nature of sin. And our problem is not just being bad or being sinful. Our problem is because of sin, we're not just bad, we're dead. 
The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so your issue, my issue, is not just that I'm bad. My issue is that before I meet Jesus, I'm dead on the inside. I don't have life inside of me. And so the moment that I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the, the, the Savior, that He is the one who died on the cross for my sins, that He rose again from the grave, and I put my personal faith in Christ, there in that moment, there's something that happens inside of me or you in that moment of faith called the new birth. You are born again, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and the Spirit of God awakens in you your conscience. God breathes into you life. You're born again. Isn't it a wonderful thing? to think that in that moment when you accepted Jesus, you became more alive than you've ever been in your entire life. At that moment when you said, Jesus, I make you Lord of, li- Lord of my life, the one who is the resurrection and the life came into you and you are born again. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And so your conscience cannot even function effectively unless you're first and foremost born by the Spirit of God. So I'd ask you this morning, Have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life when you've invited Jesus into your heart and life and the Spirit of God you know came inside of you and you say, well, how do I know if I've been born again? You know that you're born again because life comes in. You begin to recognize a new dimension of life. You begin to sense things that you didn't sense before. You begin to recognize the things you used to do you don't want to do any longer and things you used to not want to do you now want to do. How many of you know there was a time in your life you would not have been found in church on a Sunday morning for any amount of money. You would have been doing lots of other things, right? But something happened when you met Jesus. It changed you, and now you want to come to the house of God. That is a sign in you that says, God is at work in your life. There are places you used to go before you met Jesus that you don't go there anymore. There are things you used to do before you met Christ that you don't do anymore. There are new things that you now do. Why? Because you're born again. And so when you're accepting Christ in your life, there's an activation of your conscience. Your conscience cannot even function effectively without first and foremost being born again. So you need a God-activated conscience, and then you need a God-trained conscience. What I mean by that is this, we need to get more of God's truth into our heart and mind that will train or program our conscience to recognize from God's perspective what is right and what is wrong. Because the world, I'll get to this in a moment a bit more specifically, but the world is always giving you its ideas of what is right and wrong. We need God to train our conscience. The software of your soul needs to be programmed by Almighty God. And how, do you, how does that happen? Well, it's happening right now that when you come to God's house, you receive the teaching of God's Word. What's happening in this moment is that your soul, your conscience is being properly programmed with truth. When you pick up your Bible and you begin to read it, your heart and mind and soul is programmed by truth. You're beginning to have your mind renewed so that you think as God thinks because His ways are not like our ways nor are His thoughts like our thoughts. We need a properly trained conscience, a God activated conscience, a properly trained conscience, and then a Holy Spirit sensitive conscience. See, when you accepted Christ as Lord of your life, the third person of the Trinity came to live inside of you. This is amazing to consider. 
It's just awesome to even contemplate the fact that God the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the expression of God living in you, the personhood of God living in you. And the Holy Spirit, the person of God, has a voice to speak into your life. And if you will listen, He will speak to you. And usually the Holy Spirit does not yell in loud voices into our life, but He speaks in that still, small voice and reminds us, this is the way that I want you to walk and this is what I want you to do and this is what I want you to stay away from. But you and I need to cultivate our spiritual ears to listen. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church, and that is you. And so for you and I to be a good person, we need a good conscience. To have a good conscience, it has to be God-activated. It has to be properly programmed, God-trained. We have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and there has to be a reflective, self-reflective process that we engage in. What I mean by that is this. Many times we don't have a clue what we ought to be doing in life because we are so busy doing everything else that we fail to take any time or very little time to be alone with God and just to listen and reflect upon what God wants to say to us in our lives. You know that God will speak if you will listen. And there are times that you and I need to pull away and say, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me in my life? I'm going to turn off my cell phone. I'm going to turn off the television and turn off all the noise. I'm going to get alone with you and go into my prayer closet, if you will, a private place where I can simply be alone with God. And I'm going to take some time to ask myself some questions about my own life and where I'm going with my life and what I'm learning about my life and what is God trying to teach me in my life. And then in that process of self-reflection with the invitation of the Holy Spirit to help you in the process, God will help you to begin to recognize and understand what he's trying to do in your life in the moment and in the season. And that that stimulates your conscience and a good conscience makes a good person. Amen? A good conscience makes a good person. David was a young man, a man that had a good conscience. You say, well, David made some mistakes. Yes, he did, but he had a conscience that helped him in the journey. I want to take you to one illustration of this found in the the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24. I need to give you a little background before we read this so you'll understand it. David at this point in time was not yet the king of Israel. He'll be the second king of Israel, but at this point in time, he is running from the king by the name of Saul. Saul wants to kill him because Saul is jealous of David and wants to destroy him. And so David is in the southern point of Israel, southern places of Israel at this time, and he's living in caves, running to different places, trying to hide from King Saul who wants to take his life. That being said, let's now pick up the story and let's see the operation of David's conscience in this story. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Now, let me stop there for a moment. So, I mean, the Bible gets real. All right. So here's Saul, he's down in the southern part where David's running around trying to hide from him, and there's this moment that that Saul needs to have a little break, okay? He needs to look for the local restroom, and the local restroom was the cave, okay? And so he goes into the cave for this purpose, all right? 
But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. So you got the picture? Here comes Saul in to do his business, okay? And there he is in the cave, and David and his men are further back in the cave, and Saul doesn't realize that David and his men are there. Now, what is Saul trying to do to David? Saul is trying to kill him, and now here is Saul in a very vulnerable position, amen, okay? Right? Are you with me here? Use your imagination, okay? (laughs) He's in a very vulnerable position, and David is back here. Saul doesn't know that he's there. Now, picking up the story. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you should. So all of his men said, David, David, there's Saul. Go get him and get him now. God has set this up for you to kill this guy. He won't even realize it. Sneak up behind him. This is your day, man. Go after it. So David, what does the Bible said that he does there? He crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. Let's stop there for a moment. Think with me. Here is David sneaking up behind Saul in his vulnerable position, and he pulls out his knife, and he cuts off a piece of the royal robe. Now, would you agree with me? That doesn't seem like a very big deal, right? All he did was cut a piece of cloth off of this man's robe, this king's robe. You say, what's the big deal about that? doesn't seem to be something very significant, but please notice the next statement. But then David's conscience began what? Bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. Let me stop you there. The reason that David's conscience was bothering him was for two reasons. I believe, number one, Saul was God's anointed man at that time. It was God's plan and God's design and God's prerogative to take care of Saul the way Saul needed to be take care of, t- taken care of. It was not for David to take it into his own hands. And when he cut off a piece of Saul's robe, he was actually violating a sense of respect of authority in that moment. But in addition, it represented something that David knew was in his heart. Murder was in his heart against the king. And so there was something there in that moment that he realized this is not right. It's not, I don't care what my men are telling me, this is not right. Let me tell you something, folks. There are times that people all around you will be trying to tell you what is right for your life, but inside you'll know it's not right, okay? Amen? Okay? Don't you listen to the crowd. You listen to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God inside of you, amen? Because all the people around are saying, go ahead, David, this is your moment. Go ahead and do this. This is your time. Take advantage of this. God set this up. But David said, no, no, there's something in my heart. His conscience was prepared for that moment, and it bothered him. And notice what happens now as he continues here in the story. The Lord knows I shouldn't have done that to my Lord the King, he said to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the King and attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not, did not let them kill Saul. I have a question for you today. As I read this, it was a question that came to me. What if David's conscience hadn't been working very well that day? What if David had been hardened that day? What if David had taken the situation to his own hands? What if his conscience had not been working? Or what if David had not listened to his conscience? I believe what would have happened is in that moment of taking Saul's life, he would have forfeited the anointing of God upon his own life. He would have missed his own destiny, but thank God that his conscience was working. Let me tell you, when your conscience is working, it will save you from a missed destiny in your life. 
Number two, good people live with honor and with integrity. To be a good person is an attitude. It requires an attitude of honor. I'm going to live my life honorably. I'm going to live my life with integrity. An honorable person sets high standards for their life morally and otherwise. They, they live the right way when people are looking, and they live the right way when people are not looking. They are tough on themselves and tender on others. What I would submit to you today, if you want to be an honorable person, it's okay. Be tough on yourself sometimes and be tender on the people around you. See, we as human Human beings have a tendency to be tough on people around us and tender on ourselves, but it's better to be tough on yourself and tender on people around you. Live in an honorable way. Make sure that when people see your life, they see it, whether it's in public or in private, that you're living in a way that honors God, that honors the life that He's called you to live. Live with integrity and then provide honor to those to whom honor is due. Live an honorable life. Why? Because good people live with honor honor and with integrity. You can't be good without honor. You can't be good without integrity. Be the real deal. Turn to your neighbor right now and remind them, be the real deal. Go ahead and tell them, be the real deal. Okay. The world today needs no more phony baloney, amen? We've got enough of that around, so we want to be the real deal. Does that mean you're going to be perfect all the time, never make a mistake? Absolutely not. All of us make mistakes in our journey, and I'll come to that in a moment. But here's the thing, that your intention is to be the real deal, that you want to live your life with honor and with integrity before God, before your own life, and in honor of others around you. There's a man in the Bible I want to talk about just for a moment. His name was Absalom. And Absalom was David's sons, one of David's sons. After David became king, David had a number of different children, and Absalom was one of those sons. And Absalom was a very handsome young man, had long flowing hair. I mean, he just looked very kingly and just very, very sort of what you'd think of as being a solid leader. Okay? But Absalom had resentment in his heart toward his father. I don't have time to go into the story of why he had this, but there was bitterness in Absalom's heart toward his dad, David. And that bitterness worked its way into Absalom to such a degree that his bitterness led him to some very dishonorable action. Let me tell you something. Bitterness is a very bad thing. It turns people into bad people. It keeps you from being the good person that God wants you to be. And so Absalom had bitterness in his heart. And so he began to sort of conspire against his own father who was the king of Israel. And let's take a look at the story now in First Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1. Listen to this story. After this, as after some events that had happened between Absalom and David, some other events that had happened, after this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. So he's setting himself up to look like a leader, isn't he, Okay. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case for the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the king, then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before Absalom, uh, at, before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Let's take a look at what's going on. Very important story. Here's Absalom. He's bitter toward his dad, and so he's now conspiring against his very own father. And so this is how he did it. 
He set himself up to look like a leader. He would show up every morning at the gates of the city of David where people would come in to make their way to the king to appeal to him for justice in certain cases, sort of like the courts of our day. And so they would present themselves to the king. And so here's Absalom at the gates before they would enter into the city and Absalom would stop all of those going in and said, well, sir, where where are you coming from today? And they would tell him what tribe they were coming from and the location in Israel. And they would say, well, he would say, well, why are you coming? And they would present their case and information to Absalom. And Absalom would say something like this, I'm so sorry. That old guy in there doesn't know how to help you. It's pitiful, but you know, he, he's really, he's not with it anymore, okay? He doesn't get it anymore. If I were the king, however, I could really fix things for it. It's just so sad that I'm not the king, you know? It's just so, so, so sad that I could really help you, okay? So he begins to play in a pitiful way upon the emotions. And even the people would try to bow down to him and he would ingratiate himself to them. By, oh, no, don't, don't bow before me, okay? So he's playing a game with them. And the Bible says that he stole away the hearts of the people of Israel from King David. He did something, listen folks, very dishonorable. Okay, He dishonored his very own father. He dishonored God. He was living a dishonorable life. Now I want to show you where dishonor will take you. Okay, Don't you ever think that dishonor will get you where you want to go. It'll take you where you don't want to go. Okay. Let's go to the end of the story and let's see how Absalom, Absalom's life ends. Eventually there's this war that happens between Absalom's men and David's men. There's a great battle that happens. And notice what happens in verse number 9 of chapter 18. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a tree, his hair got caught in the tree. In fact, Absalom's hair, Absalom's hair was his, his point of pride, okay? So his hair got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. That's a pretty ugly way to end your life, isn't it? But hear me today, dishonorable living always leads to ugly endings, okay? Do you want to be good? Do you want to take your life to the next level, amen, okay? Do you want the right attitudes in your life? Then The attitude of goodness happens with a good conscience. The attitude of goodness happens when you and I make the decision to live with honor and with integrity. The number three, good people own personal responsibility for their decisions. Ownership, taking responsibility for your decisions in life is a part of being good. Good people own what they do. Instead of blaming other people for their choices and their mistakes and excusing things, they own responsibility. Even when they make mistakes, they own the responsibility of it. One of the signs that you haven't learned from a mistake is because you're still blaming somebody for your mistakes, okay? As long as you're blaming somebody else for some mistake in your life and you're shaming and blaming and excusing, it means you can't learn anything from it. And this problem, this tendency that we all have to push off our responsibility goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you'll eat it, you're going to die. And so they had one rule to follow. They could eat any tree, any fruit they wanted from any tree, but only one rule in the garden. Of course, you know the story of how the serpent came and tempted them and they yielded. And then there was the moment that God shows up and begins to hold them accountable for the moment. I want you to see how Adam and Eve responded and how they handled the moment. Did they own the responsibility 
for their mistake. Look at what happens. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, this is chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I was walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Stop there for a moment. Isn't that a simple question? Did you eat the fruit? Did you do it, Adam? How many know that's either yes or no, right? Right? How many parents know you've asked your kids stuff like that before? Did you do that, okay? Was that you that did it? Did you eat from the tree of the fruit I told you not to eat from? The man replied, get his, rep- his reply, it was the woman. God didn't ask anything about a woman. No reference at all to Eve in the previous question, was there? Not a simple illusion to Eve at all, but now we find that instead of owning responsibility, instead of saying, yes, God, I ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, it was a woman who gave me fruit, and I ate it. Now then God turns his attention to the woman. The Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. So we've got Adam blaming Eve, and Eve blaming the devil, okay? But nowhere in this situation do either of them take responsibility for themselves. Are you hearing me? It's blame shifting. Where did this lead them? It led them out of the garden. I would submit something to you today. What if Adam had said, God, I ate at that, that fruit. I should not. I'm sorry. I really made a mistake. I, I, I ask you to forgive me. What if Eve had said, God, I made the mistake. I, I really blew it. What do you think God's response would have been? I don't know for sure, but I would submit to you today that perhaps God in that moment would have brought forgiveness and redemption to them and restoration that perhaps they could have found their way uh, for a future destiny in that garden, but they missed it because they were not willing to own responsibility. Let's look at this in contrast to David when he had sinned in adultery with Bathsheba. Notice how he responds as he's being convicted of his sin. He writes this prayer in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. You're noticing all these personal pronouns. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you, and you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. You notice there's no blame shifting at all in David's prayer. He's owning the responsibility and because of that he experiences forgiveness and restoration and redemption. Good people own the responsibility for their choices. Number four, good people conduct their lives with excellence. To be good means to be excellent. Actually the Greek word for goodness that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 1 
actually can be translated excellence. And excellence is something you and I need to pursue in four realms of life. First of all, we need to pursue moral excellence if we're going to be good. That is the morality of your life, the understanding of what values you're going to live your life by, what is right and what is wrong. And the world will try to inundate you with its cultural values and try to water down and, 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 and in some way keep you from a commitment to what God says is right and wrong, but God has given us in His Word clear understanding of the moral values that we ought to live by. If there's a question in your mind in terms of what is right and what is wrong, there's a book that settles that question, and that book is called the Bible. And this book should inform you. Whatever God says in this book is right is right, and what God says in this book is wrong it's wrong, okay? And this is the authoritative, needs to be the authoritative source for your life. It doesn't mean that you and I will always get it right, but we live by this understanding that God has given us something of authority to live our lives by, and my morality is not going to be based upon the world around me. My morality is not going to be based on culture. My morality is not going to be based on what society says is right and wrong. If God says it's right, it's right, and if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Amen? Okay. And so there's something of security and peace that comes to us when we have an awareness of moral boundaries for our life, that God has established the fences in which we are to live our lives. So we need to pursue moral excellence based upon the values and the morality of God's Word and personal excellence that in our lives, in our work, that we're engaging ourselves in all that God asks us to do at the very best level as possible, not just when people are watching, but even when people are not watching. There's an excellence there in, in the relationships of our life that we're doing our best to learn the relationship skills that will enable us to have excellent relationships, not waiting on other people to learn them, but learning them ourselves, taking on the ownership of what Jesus said when He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Learn how to live this out in your life with a, a commitment to excellence. There's a person in the Old Testament I'll draw your attention to that lived a life of excellence, and because of that, his goodness, his excellence promoted him to levels of great blessing and destiny in his life, and his name is Daniel. Daniel, as a young man, was taken from his homeland in Judea by King Nebuchadnezzar and brought into Babylon, where Israel would spend, or Judah would spend 70 years in captivity. And, and Daniel was one of the young men that first went there uh, to be taken into the king's service. And Daniel showed himself of great wisdom, and there came a moment in the history of Babylon when there was a particular king having a party one night, and everybody's drunk, and everybody's sort of uh, talking about other gods and, and all kind of horrible things in terms of morality, and in the midst of it, a hand shows up at the party and begins to write on the wall. It's called the handwriting on the wall. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 5, and so everybody steps back from, what is that? Look at that hand. It's writing on the wall, and nobody can understand what was being written. And so the king calls in all the different advisors and asks them, what is that handwriting all about? No one, no one could understand it. No one could explain it. And then the queen said something to the king. He says, there's a young man. There's a young man in Babylon here. He came from Judea and his name is Daniel. And he's the one that perhaps can help us. Let's now pick up the story in Daniel 5 verses 11 and 12. This is, these are the words of the queen to the king, that there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an, what kind of spirit? Excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. In that moment when no one else could provide the answer, they knew that there was a man who could provide the answer because he was a man that lived in excellence, an excellence Morality, excellence in terms of his personal and work ethic, excellence when it came to his relationships. Daniel had a spirit of excellence about him. This spirit of excellence provided him opportunity for for promotion. Look at chapter 6, verse number 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. I want you to note that good people conduct their lives with excellence. If you want to be good, you make the choice of saying, I'm going to live my life excellently from a moral standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a work standpoint, from a relationship standpoint. I want to be good because I know that goodness will take my life to the next level. Last point today, good people exercise their duties conscientiously. A duty is a responsibility that you've been given. Everybody here has certain responsibilities in life, things that you've been asked to do, assigned to do. It's your assignment in life. It might be being a parent, your job that you have, a spouse. You have responsibilities. And to exercise your duties or your responsibilities conscientiously means this. You do it by your own conscience. You don't have to be watched over or supervised to get it done. A conscientious person is driven by internal motivation, not by external monitoring, okay? And that's a big difference because a lot of people will do what's right as long as they're being externally monitored, okay? If somebody's watching over their shoulder, they'll do it fine because somebody's paying attention, somebody's supervising them, somebody's enforcing it in their life. But you let that enforcer, that supervisor walk away and and their, their standards change, But a conscientious person says, no, I'm going to do what is right even when no one else is watching. I don't need a supervisor. I don't need an external monitor in my life. See, real goodness is you're good even when no one is watching. Amen? You don't have to have goodness enforced upon you. Goodness becomes a part of how you live your life. The Apostle Paul lived a good life because he was very conscientious in his duties that when it was easy to do ministry, Paul was engaged, but Paul was also engaged in ministry when it was hard. And I will tell you, it was seldom easy. It was mostly hard. But Paul conscientiously approached his duties. In 2 Corinthians, beginning in, in, in chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, I want to read you a passage as we're concluding today. And I want you to look at Paul's conscientious nature. He's describing himself in relationship to a lot of false apostles that were trying to gain positions of opportunity in the church in the early days, and he's making these statements in reference to them, comparing them to himself, and he says, are they, that is those false apostles, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, Paul says, but I've served him far more. Notice this, I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, 
been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Let me stop there for a moment. 40 lashes would kill you. 40 lashes were designed to put you to death. 39 was the limit because that was the way to torture you to the point of death without killing you. And so five times Paul says, I got 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. How many of you are ready to sign up for the ministry right now, okay? (laughs) Paul said, this is the way my life has been. But here's what I want you to see. Did Paul quit? Did Paul give up? Did Paul lay it down and say, this is too hard, man. I can't do this. No, Paul had, even though he could have walked away, even though there were times he could have slacked off, even though he could have shirked his duties at certain moments, and times he could have made excuses not to live and work the way that he did for the sake of the gospel, he did not do that. He cultivated this attitude of conscientiousness about his duties. Why? Because he was not serving man. He was serving God. Okay. He said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to be conscientious about what I do. Let me tell you something. I'm thankful that he didn't give up, aren't you? Because because Paul didn't give up. We have books in the Bible like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy. We have all these amazing books and Titus, all these books in the New Testament that give us instruction for our life, but he wrote them out of a life that was lived conscientiously. Let me tell you something. If you're going to discover your destiny, you've got to make the decision to exercise your duties, not just when somebody is watching you, you've got to make sure you exercise your duties when nobody's watching you, because when nobody here is watching you, God is always watching you, okay? It's a choice you make. So Peter said, make every effort to add to your faith. Don't just stop with faith. Faith is great. It's awesome. It's the foundation for everything, but add to your faith. What what was the next word? goodness. Add to your faith goodness. Good people cultivate a good conscience inside of them. Good people live with honor and with integrity. Good people own personal responsibility for their choices, their decisions. Good people conduct their lives with excellence, and good people exercise their duties conscientiously. And when you and I begin to learn more about goodness, we begin to increase in measure in goodness. I promise you, you'll begin to move down the road runway of life and you'll take off to a new level of living to the destiny God has determined for you. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, thank you for your word. We're so grateful today for the opportunity we've had to study. Thank you for reminding us today of the importance of goodness. And Lord, we want to be good. We want goodness to be a part of who we are and We pray today that through the grace and working of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God that you would allow us to develop this this goodness characteristic, this goodness attitude in the way that we live our lives.
Help us to add to our faith goodness, we pray in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.